Hey friends, Cable here, and this week's podcast is proudly brought to you by my friends over at Kent Cartridge. Uh, I've got a man, I've got a lot of history with this brand, going back to my college days when I was waiting tables just to fund my duck hunting addiction. That's when I first discovered Kent, and uh, I'd mess around with other brands, cheaper brands, and literally watch the pellets bounce off of greenheads. Uh, I found Kent, and I fell in love. And nothing's changed over the last 20 years except for, well, I'd say Fast Steel 2.0 is even better than the original. And Kent offers a premium shell at a sub-premium price. Check it out. It's Fast Steel 2.0. You can find it at your local retailer. This week's show also brought to you by Ducks Unlimited. Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has set the gold standard for both waterfowl and wetlands conservation. I'm a proud member. I've served on the Dallas committee for over a dozen years. And here's why I do it. Because, of course, I'm passionate about waterfowling, but I also want to make sure that there are full skies of wintering waterfowl for my son and for generations to come. If you feel the same way, then just head over to ducks.org. I guarantee you there's a chapter in your area, and those guys and gals would love to have you. Do it for the ducks. I was born on this mountain a long, long time ago, before they knocked down the timber and a strip mine all the coal. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Cable Smith welcoming everybody into episode 664 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Presented by Mossberg Firearms. Little Levon Helm to get things going for us today. Thank you so much for being here. Man, it is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be here talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. So I do appreciate you dropping by. Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you today. But uh, first, one interesting note coming from Utah, a place where I keep buying points, but uh, I've never actually hunted in Utah. Uh, I know they've got some giant elk and some great mule deer hunting as well. Big cats come out of Utah. But <laughs> the uh, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources announced last week a statewide emergency closing shed hunting in an effort to help wintering big game, particularly deer populations. The antler gathering restrictions go into effect February 7th through April 30th across Utah on both private and public lands. So uh, I, I don't know whether to laugh or cringe, to be honest with you. To me, shed hunting seems like something that is reserved for the 6-5 Creedmoor crowd, uh, personally. But I... <laughs> I get it, especially if you have like your own place. Like if I had my, if I owned my own land and I was chasing a specific deer year after year, I could see his growth and try to find those antlers. Maybe I'd be into that. But generally speaking, whether it's in the backcountry or on my deer lease, I see the antler. If it's a big one, I might pick it up, throw it in the truck. Generally speaking, I kick it out of the way and keep walking because the only bone I'm interested in is existing on an animal's head while I'm looking at looking at them through the scope. That's just me. Like I like, uh, I like big antlers. I just prefer them on the wall, uh, rather than stacked up in a pile in the garage or the barn or, 
you know, X number of places where I've seen these shed hunters pile up their, I, do you want to call them trophies? What do you want to call them? To me, it's just discarded bone. But uh, I do feel for the folks who actually supplement their income by selling shed antlers. But let's be honest, that uh, that's few and far between. Most of these guys go out, collect the bone, pile it up, and uh, that's just what they do. Maybe they'll sell it someday, but I've, I I just don't get it. Um, now, to try to enforce that on private land, oof. if it's my land, I'm probably going to be giving the uh, Utah Department of whatever they call themselves, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, the middle finger. It's my land. But I will tell you what is deplorable, and this is why they did it. It's because shed hunters are actively harassing elk and mule deer, pushing them into heavy cover, trying to get them to drop their antlers. It's literally a mad race. I've had Utah residents tell me this exact fact, that they line up at the trailhead. As soon as it's light, they race into areas where they are known wintering grounds for these species, and they pressure the animals, trying to get them to drop their antlers. And that's deplorable on every level. I mean, these animals are at their weakest point of the entire year. They've come out of the rut. They're trying to build up fat reserves, and they're trying to do that in the harshest conditions, the most snowfall of the year. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't really feel bad for them. And it might be a situation where a few bad apples ruined it for everyone else, but so be it. Uh, put the, uh, the emphasis on protecting the wildlife over you getting your jollies off, uh, you know, by scoring a 180-inch rack. I, don't, I could care less. That's my take. But it's sad that it came to that. Uh, anyway. What are we doing on today's broadcast? Let me tell you, it's going to be a good one to kick things off. Why don't you go ahead and pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that Black Rifle coffee out of Granddaddy's beat-up old Stanley Thermos because off the top we'll be joined by our old pal Brian Lynn of Sportsman's Alliance. So much to get into with Brian as we look around states like New Mexico trying to make you a criminal if you have a, an AR uh, Washington State trying to put people in power who are literally out there saying they're going to try to criminalize hunting activities. Uh, it's it's There's so many other ones to get into as well, but I think those will be two that we hit on for sure. Uh, just the mindset of these people. It, it, one lady even said hunters truly are the ones that put the con in conservation. Uh, that was a California uh, uh, hearing, and I think they – invited the public for general comment but that mentality hunters put the con in conservation what are you doing lady huh how are you funding conservation you're not you're just sitting up there on your uh, you know throwing rocks from your glass house acting like you contribute when all you do is try to neuter the mechanism that actually funds conservation in this country um, but yeah we'll, we'll talk about all those things then we're gonna talk duck dogs specifically a fiery, small in stature little breed with a big heart, the Boykin Spaniel. We'll talk uh, Boykins with Blaine Tarnecki of Hudson River Retrievers coming up in just a little bit. So, you know, maybe uh, you want something smaller than a lab. Can you get the versatility and the compact size of a, of a Boykin? I don't know. But Blaine's been breeding and working with, training this breed for I think like two decades now. So uh, he's pretty much the authority on all things Boykins. 
So that's what we're going to do today. I'm looking forward to it as I am always up for talking duck dogs. Um, real quick, how about a giveaway from, what do we have today? How about, let's give away some ammunition. I've got uh, three boxes of Norma Whitetail ammunition in a 308 caliber. And we'll give these away to one lucky winner. And that's like $100 worth of ammo these days. You've seen the prices of ammunition skyrocket over the last three years. So anyway, three boxes, Norma Whitetail ammunition, hundred and I think they're 160 grain. So just email the word Whitetail, that's Whitetail, to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. And you are entered into today's giveaway. Coming up next, we'll sit down with our old pal Brian Lynn of Sportsman's Alliance on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Don't take your love time. If you're looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW, then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. In the market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. Favorites there from Camp No Sleep. The name of that one bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. I'm Cable Smith, and we are all set to uh, check in with our good friend Brian Lynn, VP of Marketing for Sportsman's Alliance. And we've got some really <laughs> some legislation that's left me flabbergasted. Some of it coming from one of my favorite states to hunt and uh, fish in. Before we dive into that, however, this segment brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'm a proud member. For more info, head over to safariclub.org. Well, let's bring on our first guest today, longtime friend of the show, Brian Lynn, VP of Marketing over at Sportsman's Alliance. It's always great to visit with you, man. Always great to be here, Cable. Always fun. So how are things in your uh, part of the world up in Washington State? Oh, they suck. They suck. <laughs> you, you name it, they're, they're coming after it. Guns, uh, hunting, wildlife management, pretty much anything and everything. They, they want to take it. So, uh, But at least we yeah. don't have a foot and a half of snow. But that could change it any day. Another thing that sucks, the weather. Yeah, so that's where I wanted to start. Um, 
I saw on the Sportsman's Alliance uh, Instagram page that like they're not even hiding it at this point, being totally transparent. And this is, I guess, uh, Commissioner Lorna Smith. Is she the head of your fishing game? No, she's she's on the commission. She's a commissioner, so we have a nine-person commission. Okay, are pretty much anti-hunting and outspokenly so. Five of the nine are anti-hunting. Yeah, and so they're just doing whatever they want to right now, and we're about to lose probably two more. Well, we've already lost one. He retired at the end of the year, and Kim Thorburn, who is a good one for us, she's not going to be reappointed because, and she'll probably get the call in the next day or two because she's been outspoken against those five and against the governor and against everybody else. So she won't get reappointed. And so Inslee, Governor Inslee will undoubtedly put another anti-hunter on there and Mm. be controlling the board. So this Lorna Smith gal, who looks like a dude, by the way, um, she just came out. I, what, or no, it's, it's it's this week like she's coming out when they're having what are they doing uh she so their their game game management plan is up for discussion again and renewal so this is kind of like what we saw last year in arizona right bring up the new game management policy for a couple years um she wants to as we alerted at the end of last year with uh, the wildlife society letting wildlife for all present at their national conference this is the push is to change commissions so they're more democratic, meaning more anti-hunters on them, mm-hmm. and implement predator hunting bans and change the fundamentally change the way wildlife management is done in the in the nation, state by state. Washington is just perfectly positioned with the governor, with the legislature, and with the appointment process to be able to do this. And they're just running full steam ahead. I mean, they got, they're shoving coal in there and they're, uh, they're, they're just going wherever and doing whatever they want. You saw the spring bear hunt where it started. Now they want to take it to the next step with, you know, talking about the game management plan. And this is offering their alternative game management plan. And it's basically implementing everything they want and a new way to manage game new funding sources and to do away with hunting. So to create a game management plan void of all kinds of predator management. Yes. Wow. What do they, do they still include like uh, elk and deer and stuff like that as viable options? Uh, Yeah, but we'll see how they say they want to do that because Mm -hmm management of the predators as we've seen in the blue mountains here the blues we used to be a trophy spot for elk and now they're getting this decimated by black bears by wolves and primarily by uh mountain lions you know mm-hmm. half mortality rate they've done studies and it's like 10 percent. <laughs> i mean it's horrible and yeah. i just pointed out to lorna and melanie Rowland and barbara baker and everybody else you know the other five uh commissioners they're like yeah, let's just lower the threshold and remove uh, hunter tags. We'll be okay. Literally, they said that in public in a commission meeting. <laughs> so because we will not implement a predator management sustainable use model, 
we'll just take away hunter opportunity for cervid species because the predators that we're no longer managing have to eat them. Yep. So hunters can't. Take care of the population control and we hunt the surplus, of course. And so they'll just don't need hunting then. They, of course, they run into a funding issue, which. Yeah, I'm that's gonna, my next question. Yeah. It should be interesting to see what uh, she says in this because so far it's all theoretical and it's all hoping, wishing, and praying. Like, you know, when they had the Wildlife Society meeting back in November and they presented this and the panel was asked that very question, every single one of them said, well, we have to pass the uh, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which didn't pass. And then we have to, you know, increase general funding from the general fund. Well, like, oh, it's that easy? I mean, this is why our system evolved to begin with, was that we did not prioritize wildlife over society. I mean, here in Washington, we've got a homeless issue. We've got mental health issues. We've got drug issues. I mean, basically because drugs are legal here. Mm -hmm. um, we've got all sorts of issues going on, homeless in the streets are just everywhere. And I think a lot of cities are seeing that, but they think that what Democrats and Republicans are going to join hands and ignore all these societal problems that their voters are mad about and give it to the red bellied newt that's in some drainage. Oh, right. You know, they're living in a fairy tale land. Yeah. Wildlife will take it in the shorts. No yeah. doubt about that. Why we created this model was that we paid for it and we pay to play model that everybody benefits from because we didn't prioritize it. Yeah, I was just listening to some public comment from a California, what is their game? Is it California fishing game? Yeah. So they had a public comment meeting, a virtual one, where I, amazingly, like California realizes they have too many bears, I guess. And they're thinking about adding a second black bear tag. So anyway, uh, they had a public comment period. And uh, at the hearing, it was through like a Zoom call. But this lady jumps on. She's an L.A. resident, of course. And uh, here's her take on how hunters really put the con in conservation. There's Patty Stanker from Los Angeles. My family and I strongly oppose adding the second bear tag for hunters and hope you reject it. As the L.A. Times editorial wrote today against the second tag, quote, the state doesn't have a reliable count of its bear population and how many are out there is a concern following the state's disgraceful wildlife management decision a century ago to allow grizzly bears to be hunted until they were gone. So hunters really do put the con in conservation. Bears are also profoundly affected by climate change. Oh, climate change shocker that she would work that in. Uh, <laughs> typical L.A. wokest animal rights activist idiot. I'm like, yeah, maybe government trappers, government paid hunters. That is not a reflection of the modern day sportsman. And Teddy Roosevelt gave us the blueprint about 100 years ago, uh, which we have followed. And as a result, like these people don't even realize that a hunter who understood sustainable use is the one that set up the national park system. Like there wouldn't be these public lands if it wasn't for a hunter who saw the value in what they could provide yeah. and keeping wild places wild for the species that we all love. 
Yeah, and that's and so many people today are ignorant of history and what what happened at the turn of the century that they conflate sport hunting and that's another issue is they conflate sport hunting and market hunting and say well you wiped it out and then you brought it back so you can wipe it out again it's like no it's market hunting the term sport hunting was derived to show that we followed rules and had seasons and bag limits and that's where the term came from now they bastardized that into a bad thing that this isn't a game you shouldn't take a life for fun blah 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 and can and conflating it with modern day baseball and other games yeah that's not at all what it means but that's another issue that we're running into that's a pr issue and a media issue that they've seized on along with trophy hunting in most game situations don't involve death at the end of it <laughs> games or something i don't know like i'm going there to kill something and then i'm gonna eat it and by the way if it's a nice one i'm gonna put it's horns or antlers or cape or whatever on my wall because i like to but that fits their agenda and it works but know? i'm a trophy hunter which they've like you use the term bastardized they've bastardized that too like what does it what does trophy hunter really mean well it means uh i like to hunt the old males that have already sown their wild oats it might not even be part of the breeding population at this point but that got to a ripe old age and instead of them dying of old age or being eaten by wolves, starving, killed by another uh, up-and-comer, more dominant buck or bull or whatever it is. Instead of that, I'm going to kill them and eat them. And I'm going to pay a lot of money to do that. And that money is going to fund the very things that you pretend to care about while you throw rocks from your glass house. Yep. Amen. It's just a... Uh, I could go on forever on that. Let's talk about New Mexico, though. Um, and so I just made a list because you and I haven't talked basically like the holidays and then trade uh, trade show season started. You've been on the road. Um, I'm about to head to uh, SCI in Nashville this week. Um, but I made a list from y'all's social media stuff and your, the newsletter and uh, one of them that I wanted to hit on. And I couldn't believe this because... The land of enchantment is a special place to me. I mean, it's borders Texas, so it's easily accessible. Um, some of my fondest memories have occurred in the pub on, on the public lands of New Mexico's backcountry. But it makes me second guess whether I want to continue to support that state when they come out and say that uh, they are going to make it illegal not to buy. And this is my, you can correct me if I'm speaking out of turn here. But not just to buy an AR platform rifle, but to own one. So, and I think this goes into effect in July. I think if you haven't gotten rid of your AR by that point in time, you could become a felon. Uh, prior to March 1st, 2024. Oh, good. So you have a year to do it. <laughs> March 1st. So what it, what exactly does the um, new bill? And it has been passed, correct? Uh, no, it's working through the process right now. It, uh, well, that's at least good. There's a hearing actually tomorrow uh, in, in the, uh, let's see, it is in the House Judiciary Committee tomorrow afternoon at 1.30. So it's, it's working through the House right okay. now. Okay. And this is HB 100 and HB 101, House Bills 100 and 101. 
Yep, 100 is a 14-day waiting period, which is interesting, right? Because mm -hmm. so far the standard has been 10 days. So what the, so what's going through here in Washington was passed by ballot initiative in Oregon. It's kind of like your, uh, you know, standard magazine. I'm using air quotes for people that can't uh, see mm -hmm. it rounds. But now all of a sudden it's 14. We've seen Biden and others say eight rounds now. You don't. It shows this slippery slope, right? Like you can go from 10 to 14 to whatever, or from. 10 rounds to eight rounds it is whatever fits the narrative for them and pushes their agenda. So this, yeah, the first one would be a, a mandatory waiting period of two weeks. And that's, then, yeah, that's HB 100. Uh -huh. yep. And then, uh, you know, which I testified against here in Washington, none of the studies, you know, Rand Corporation, which is a think tank that the military uses, like nobody argues with a lot of their, with their conclusions. And they looked at the whole body of evidence for waiting periods, training, mandatory training. And at best, it's inconclusive. Mm -hmm. Even with waiting periods, it's actually shown in some in some instances to increase homicides. Women, domestic partner violence, you know, wanting to get a gun and are murdered during the waiting period. So it's actually shown to increase it at times. I mean, I'm opposed to that, but that one really isn't, that one doesn't piss me off as much as HB 101, which is, and I'm reading this now from your uh, social media, HB 101 redefined several commonly owned semi-automatic rifles, pistols, and shotguns as assault weapons and bans the possession, manufacture, purchase, sale, and transfer of these assault weapons, air quotes, along with standard capacity magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition. There, this is the sticking point. There is no grandfather clause. There is no grandfather clause, reiterate that. And current owners would be required to move the redefined assault weapons out of state, sell them to a federal firearm license dealer, or surrender them to law enforcement prior to, this says July 1st, 2023. So there's a little discrepancy there. But uh, And if they don't, they will face felony charges. A felon. So I had on... Um, I'm not a big fan of his from a Pittman Robertson standpoint, but I am a big fan of his for his advocacy towards the second amendment. And I'm talking about uh, representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia. I had him on last week to talk about, and, and you guys even said it in your write up here, how New Mexico is redefining what these weapons are. And he, you know, was very clear that the, and on a federal level level, the Biden administration is redefining terms because they don't have the sway in DC to do away with uh, ARs or, you know, undermine the second amendment. So what do they do? They go in and they redefine what something is. So they rewrite the definition, just like they rewrote the definition of a vaccine and what, what they rewrote the definition of what a woman is too. Like now we're going to redefine, rewrite the definition of what these weapons are. And typically, and he used this term, which I had never heard before. Maybe I'm just a good old boy, but it, the word is uh, lenity, which means if you already owned it, and the Supreme Court ruled on uh, another law where they were trying to you know, uh, encroach on gun rights, but they said, if you already owned it, you're guaranteed not to have to turn it in based off of lenity, meaning there should be common sense here you didn't buy it when it was illegal and they can't take it away from you. That's not what New Mexico is trying to do. No. 
not at all. You know, and it says capable of holding more than 10. I mean, you're looking at 22s. You're looking at some of the extended barrel shotguns, you know, receiver is shotguns. Yeah. Home defense shotguns. Yeah. So, I mean, that's shotguns, rifles, handguns. It's anything and everything. And it's a felony. Right. Felony. Yeah. So you do absolutely nothing and you could be a felon. Yeah. You commit no crime. You're just sitting there as you always have. Uh, knock, knock. It's the ATF. We're here to see if you still own XX and X guns. If you do, you're going to come with us. Shoot. Cops come to your house to take a report on something else and see it. Yeah. They can, they can do it, you know, and then, then you're nailed too. So, yeah. And, and I mean, New Mexico is probably right behind uh, Washington State in, in what it's been doing. It's It's gone from purple to pretty blue now for the last several years in cycles and uh, i mean with deb howland at the at the head there oh, oh my god she's and everything else so it's not a sportsman friendly it's not the land of enchantment for sportsmen not anymore that's for damn sure uh, in the the guys that i've hunted with there the ones who've packed me in on backcountry hunts on horseback they can't wrap their minds around why people are still voting blue in that state. Like they're always there. Like last time I was there on horseback was 2020. And uh, they were all like, yeah, we're cautiously uh, optimistic that we're going to get flip it back red. Oh, they got slaughtered, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot of poverty in that state and a lot of mm -hmm. uh, programs that are being undertaken. And so that tends to skew it. Towards that left side. Well, yeah. You know, they they need that government nipple to suck on. So, and when you give it to them a little bit, you can't take that away from the baby's mouth. The baby gets upset. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, well, we'll continue to monitor that situation. That's like you said, uh, HB 101 is the most concerning to me. Yeah. Um, and we'll see if that gets passed or not. But I don't think... Have other states passed the same thing where they have made it a felony to possess those weapons? I mean, that's Canadian stuff right there. Yeah. Um, I don't believe so. I think there were a couple up in the Northeast, one up in the Northeast a couple of years ago, tried to do a buyback program mm -hmm. miserably. Well, there's certainly states that have banned certain magazines. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, California, of course. Washington, yeah, but uh, I I have not heard of one where you can't you just simply can't own it. Yeah, especially after it's already been legal and it's just setting a cold hard date that turns you into a felon automatically. I don't believe that's yours. Is just sitting in your gun safe behind you, and if you do nothing at all, felon exactly. potentially. Yeah. All right. Well, with that Debbie Downer news from New Mexico, uh, let's take a quick break and come back and hear some uh, equally ridiculous stuff coming out of Colorado. And uh, a lot of it doesn't have to do with wolves either. I know you thought I was going to say wolves, but no, no, no. Uh, stuff that will affect your pocketbook as a hunter. But don't worry. They're saying it's voluntary. But is it? Uh, that segment of the show was brought to you by... Vortex Optics, who right now is offering up a $5,500 prize pack. 
All you need to do is sign up to join their newsletter. That's it. It's so simple. Who doesn't want the Vortex newsletter anyway? I know I do. Uh, well, I already get it, but um, yeah, all you need to do is go to join.vtxnation.com and you are entered into the $5,500 sweepstakes, which you can mix and match any Vortex products that you want. Pick and choose. Customize it to yourself. Join.vtxnation.com. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey guys, Cable here for Armasite. If you're looking to light up the night, whether that's with thermal or night vision, then you need to head over to Armasite.com. That's where you can find all of the thermal and night vision monoculars, uh, thermal weapon sights, and of course, night vision nods. Yeah, those cool looking helmets, the one that I have. Yeah, buddy. You can find them over at Armasite.com. They've got it all right there. And even better than that, they've got some new stuff coming down the pike like the 640 contractor i've got the 320 640 even better you can find it all at armorsite.com i'm chris letzinger online sales manager at cinnamon creek ranch here reminding you we're not your typical archery club we're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges full pro shop and six different 3d courses cinnamon creek was designed by hunters for hunters Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Wow. We live in crazy times when it comes to censorship on social media. And if you're a gun owner and a hunter, and if you're proud of those things and you post about those things, then you're already on the blacklist. You're getting censored. You might not even know it. Take it from me, I had my Instagram page deleted for an entire month for no reason last year. Mm-hmm. Guess what? That kind of stuff doesn't happen over at Go Wild. It's a community of people who love to hunt, fish, and cook their wild game. They also love guns. If you want to be a part of that kind of place where you're not getting censored, where they actually promote posts with that kind of content, just go to download Go Wild. It's a free app. I absolutely love it. You'll see me there posting every day. So come on, join the conversation at Go Wild. Hey, this is Evan Felker with the Turnpike Troubadours. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Well, I left my heart in Tulsa On the corner of Eastern and Main On the Canes ballroom floor Soaking up a bourbon stain Man, I wish Turnpike would put out another record. I tell you what, I think they were about the best thing going in their heyday. Uh, I'm Cable Smith. Thanks for tuning in to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, brought to you by Mossberg. Uh, we are going to continue our conversation with Sportsman's Alliance's Brian Lynn. First, though, this segment brought to you by NUMA Gear for the Outdoors. Here's the cool thing. Uh, NUMA is the only hunting apparel company that has a lifetime warranty on all of their gear. No questions asked. Something breaks, you send it back, they'll fix it or send you a brand new one. And if you're like me, you probably beat the hell out of your hunting gear. Like more than anything else, my hunting clothing that I wear on my body takes a beating. <laughs> it just does. And you can't beat a lifetime warranty. You can find their entire lineup at numaoutdoors.com. Okay, uh, well, Brian, thanks for sticking around. Let's head over to Colorado at this point. 
because the good sportsmen of Colorado, uh, much like I would say Seattle controls the vote for Washington State, Portland obviously sways things in Oregon, uh, but Denver and Boulder have really effed things up for all of the good conservationists, sportsmen, and women of one of the most beautiful states in the country, really. It's a damn shame, which this is amazing. They're trying to propose a $13 tax on hunting licenses for a voluntary program to swap lead for non-toxic shot. Yeah. Well, explain to me how if you have to pay the $13, it's voluntary. <laughs> like, what's voluntary about that? You that part is turning in your uh, lead shots, but you have to pay for it whether you want to or not. So, yeah, the, it's to uh, buy the alternative metal shots, shot shells, bullets, whatever, and to fund educational programming, pamphlets, whatever, and to promote non-toxic, in quotes there, non-toxic shot and bullets. And if you come in and you want to trade in your recently bought ammo or older ammo, older ammo, I guess, before a date, that you can turn it in and get a non-toxic replacement. Now, how they are going to determine whether you bought it in the past or bought it just now, because you can probably make a mint going in and buying a whole bunch of cheap lead and turn it in, turn it in for a uh, for the non-toxic stuff and then reselling that. But uh, it's a $13 tax. They say it could be higher. That's a minimum, right? They need to raise $5.2 million a year for the first several years to fund this initiative of buying the alternative ammo to give away to swap out and the education process. And they're guessing like 290,000 licenses that it would apply to out of like 700,000. If they didn't sell that many, the price would have to go up to cover the the difference, right? Of course. Increase the price of something, participation drops. It's just, it's a known fact. So, yeah. So $13, but it's voluntary. But hey, do I have to pay it? Yes, you do. <laughs> you volunteer to pay it because yes. I told you to. License to pay it. Yeah, dude. And we've had on uh, multiple employees of ammunition manufacturing companies. Uh, also, folks like uh, Mark Oliva of the uh, NSSF. And you know, there's just no magic switch. These companies can't overnight start making all non-toxic shot. The machinery doesn't work that way. The materials aren't as easy to get. What's going to happen is there will be a shortage. Prices will go through the roof. It's impractical. Science doesn't support it. But yet here they are, and they know it. So it's just another underhanded shot at hunting. Well, we see the refuge stuff that we've been talking about for over a year now. Thanks, Deb. Pushing there. So, yeah, we've seen it. Actually, I had a great conversation with uh, John Zinnel from Federal at SHOT Show. Mm Mm-hmm. All of the lead they use, federal, CCI, et cetera, all of the lead they use is from recycled car batteries. All of the steel shot that everybody uses comes from China. Mm. It's an interesting dynamic that I... China. 
It's like we can import steel or we can use the lead that's already here and being recycled and used again. So you want mm -hmm. to talk about environmental impacts and things like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and love him or hate him or indifferent. I mean, at least Trump tried to get us to be less dependent on China. Yeah. But I mean, the first thing this administration did was, hey, how fast can we get back in bed with China? So not a surprise there. But I, I didn't even realize, though, uh, that's a great point that we it's kind of a renewable resource used in repurposing old car batteries and turning it into ammunition. Yeah. You know, or mining fresh stuff out of China, which doesn't follow the same environmental regulations we do. Mm. And China doesn't give a crap about environmental regulations. Yeah. So yeah. it's an interesting point to look at. I'm, I'm kind of digging around for a story there. Yeah. Uh, second thing going on in Colorado, and we had on um, a uh, lifelong Colorado resident and fly fishing guide, and then uh, Charles Whitwam from Howl for Wildlife a couple weeks ago. And we talked about their wolf management plan, but then I saw an update that they didn't make any headway and they're they're up for uh i guess three of their commission members are up for replacement and they're likely to be replaced with anti-hunting leaning individuals which the problem here is there is no wolf management plan it's just we're going to turn the wolves loose they're not going to be listed as a game species and they can just do whatever they want Dude, I have never, I've never publicly said that landowners should just deal with it themselves. But I think that's about if they if they push this forward. But even like in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana in '95, when they reintroduced wolves, they had a plan that said we have 150 breeding pairs or whatever the number was. Then we will turn it over to the states; they can control it. Now that was another legal crapshoot, and they still are fighting that in court. You know, every time. As, as frequently as the antis can, you know, get the money together to sue them, which is what they exist to do. Uh, but at least they had the plan and on paper it said, when we get to this number, you guys can manage the wolves. What they're trying to do in Colorado is not have that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have a draft, but where it's at in the process, I'm not sure. But it said when it gets to 200 wolves, I think they'll become less threatened or something. Um and then managed accordingly but each of these every time they put a threshold in a plan it allow it's a that's an exact platform to sue on saying they didn't meet the required requirements of that threshold or aren't considering the implications of that threshold to something else and so every time you try to define this stuff you actually box yourself in mm -hmm. so it, it's well, uh, you know they they've, they've got something here that they've really latched onto that works for them and it works for them, you know, one, it's a cash cow. Two, it advances their uh, their idea of what they want, and that's rewilding, in quotes. And then three, it stops or slows hunting of the ungulates. So it's a trifecta for them that's working for their agenda and their pocketbooks. Yeah. And the whole time, yeah, all it is is undermining. Like, we know what's going to happen to the elk herd. We know, I think it was... And I, I have I said this in that interview with them, but I think it was $76 million Colorado generated from non-residents 
2022. License sales, ammunition. I don't know. I don't think travel was even included in that. Uh, so where are they going to come up with that money? Yeah, that's where they hope and pray everybody's just going to join hands to save this stuff while they got homelessness and drug issues and everything else. It's not going to happen. They're living but in a Going back to what I was going to say is I've never publicly said landowners should just shoot the wolves and bury, you know, SSS. I'm about to that point. If you're going to take advantage of the authority, I think you when you cross that line, am I really do am I really beholden to your unscientific wildlife management policy? Well, yes, if I get caught, but am I really poaching if and that's the other thing that the, what the antis are trying to get past is one that does not include reimbursement to landowners if livestock is killed. So they don't want any of that. I was, I was reading one that had uh, it was an eight thousand dollar reimbursement, but right. But the reason why the the reason why the antis don't want to have the current proposal passed is because of that. That's one of the sticking points. They don't want that included. They don't want landowners. To, so also they want to take a shot at ranching. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've seen it here in Washington. It's, uh, you know, it started off with reimbursement for for lost calves and cows and whatever else. But then that went away. And then on top of that, we spend like a million dollars a year or more shooting the wolves, control the state controlling the wolves. In Washington? Yeah. Oh, I see. I didn't know Washington was was aerial gunning the wolves. Yeah, the state, when they have a problem pack, they've wiped out a couple of packs that have become habituated to cattle. And so, huh. got a couple. Well, that's encouraging, at least. Yeah. And so it's, uh, you know, but that's, I think it's over a million dollars a year now they spend shooting, shooting wolves that the state does to manage them. And mm-hmm. man- well, it's not, it's not like you could just sell wolf tags and let the hunters do that and not have to pay the million dollars. You could actually, Wolf tags are not expensive. You they're usually thirty to fifty dollars, depending on the state. Yeah, but you could actually create some revenue and uh, let the hunters do their part. Ours were actually uh, in eastern Washington, where I live, on the border of Idaho. Ours are actually federally delisted. They they were included with the Idaho, Montana, Wyoming mm-hmm. uh, population, but they're still protected under the State Endangered Species Act, which has different thresholds, meaning packs and different parts of the state and uh you know number so most of the wolves live just north of me here <laughs> mm. about 25 minutes to an hour just north of me and that's where most of them are and those guys are just getting hammered as they're waiting for them to disperse and going back to Lorna Smith to come full circle she lives out on the peninsula and was like I would love it to be able to look out my window and know there's wolves out here and we're like I'll help you pick them up Help you pack them over there. We'll drop them off. You can have them. Yeah. Because you're getting hammered while they're just waiting for everybody else to la doll along. Mm. Wow. Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. What's happening here in yeah, regard it, to uh, just emotionally driven wildlife management across the board? Yeah, it's it's a busy session again. It's it's firing up. A lot of the gun control stuff has come up. Uh to begin, to begin with, of course, you know, all the states hammering that. But, you know, if you go to our website, we have a new uh, heat map where you can see dark orange, light orange, a lighter orange even for the number of bills that are introduced. And right now we're tracking 443 hunting bills, 63 hmm. 
15 dog ones, 50 trapping, 116 fishing, and 149 that deal with Fish and Wildlife Commissions. And you can go on there, click on it by state or topic, and then you'll see the bill numbers and quick descriptions, and it'll lead you down the pipeline. And so you can go down a wormhole if you want to looking at stuff. Well, we certainly appreciate you guys picking up the slack for the rest of us, keeping us all informed. It's a thankless task, like I said, uh, but one that I think we'd be pretty well screwed if uh, we didn't have organizations like Sportsman's Alliance. Uh, so, Brian, a big fan of you guys, as you well know. Thanks for everything you do and appreciate the time today. You betcha. Thank you, buddy. You bet, my friend. There he goes, Brian Lynn of Sportsman's Alliance. You can find them on, on all the socials and their website at that name. Um, always great catching up with Brian. That segment brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. Coming up next, we're talking duck dogs, specifically a, a small and stature breed that packs a big punch in the field. You're listening to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Confronted my fears at the point of the day. All that I ask is one simple request. Just give me some peace, Lord. Give me some rest. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use e-forms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Did you know that Orvis has been family-owned since its inception in 1856? Think about that. Uh, they also donate 5% back to protecting nature. Orvis and his customers have raised and donated more than $20 million to protecting nature over the past 25 years. They continue to grow a community of outdoorsmen and women with classes focused on everything from fly fishing to wing shooting and hunting dog handling from basics all the way to advanced. And don't forget about their unique fly fishing and wing shooting trips all over the world. Orvis, proudly American-made fly fishing gear since 1856. It's that time of the year where you might want to try to kick off a new year with a fitness journey. Cryo and More has all your holistic healing needs with cold therapy, heat therapy, and pressure therapy, which shortcuts the time you have to spend recovering from your workout or minimize the muscle soreness you feel from physical activity. Cryo Skin is a body hack that speeds up the death cycle of the fat cells using non-invasive technology that uses heat and cold to eliminate fat cells. Your greatest wealth is your health. Visit cryoandmore.com or head over to the location off of Virginia Parkway in McKinney. Now she's running up ahead to chase someday. Comes back to tell me that the coast is clear. It's a different world I see when it's just my dog and me. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Thanks for being here. We're about to get into one of my absolute favorite topics, bird dogs, specifically duck dogs. But before we do that, this segment of the show brought to you by the Mossberg 940 series. Uh, whether you're looking for a, a duck gun, they've got the pro waterfowl. Or uh, spring is almost here. Maybe you need a new turkey gun. They've got a 940 in that model as well. It's their new semi-auto-loading platform. You can find the 940 series at Mossberg.com. Okay, uh, well, 
I've had the pleasure of hunting with a bunch of different breeds over the years, not only in the duck blind, but also upland from Brittany's to English pointers to Springer Spaniels, Poodle pointers. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's so many great options. Vizlas, uh, but one in particular that I've hunted with quite a bit due to my buddy Ray Johnston's uh, affinity for them is the little Boykin Spaniel. And while I will always be a lab guy through and through, uh, there's a place for other breeds, both uh, in the field and in the duck blind. And so for someone who wants a smaller dog, uh, the Boykin, I think, offers a lot of versatility in a very compact package. So joining us now, uh, a guy who has dedicated his career to working with and promoting this breed, it is my pleasure to welcome Blaine Tarnecki of Hudson River Retrievers. Yeah, excited. Uh, can't wait to talk about some little dogs. Yeah. So um, first of all, thanks to Ducks Unlimited for getting us hooked up. Uh, Tom Davis recently had an article focused on smaller dogs uh, as working dogs in the duck blind. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, but first, a little bit about you as a, a hunter and a dog trainer. You're looks like you've got some I don't know. What is that? That reminds me of like Savannah, Georgia. Like maybe there should be an old plantation behind you with those trees. And <laughs> Pretty much, man. We're in central Florida. We try to get down here for a month this time of year when it's uh, a little too cold up in northeast Georgia in the mountains and come uh -huh. down here, get a little head start with our field trial dogs and hunt test dogs in the water. So, yep, you see the pretty Spanish moss on the big live oaks and mm. uh, enjoying our time down here. Yeah, looks. I mean, you're in short sleeves and uh yeah. shorts looks balmy yeah so uh what about you did you grow up as a duck hunter i did not i grew up as a i grew up in southwest florida uh -huh. uh, originally and we hunted we hunted deer and hogs and turkey and uh things like that and as a kid squirrels and rabbits and quail everything a young boy would do with a shotgun and uh did that and it wasn't until my early 20s when I'd moved to Northeast Georgia, which is the, you know, the, the, the worst waterfowling area in the country that I took up, uh, duck hunting a little bit, uh, got involved with some guys that had Boykins and we kind of met by chance to get into, you know, to get into the meat of it. I guess I can tell you part of my, my story with that, but yeah. Uh, hunting a little public watershed lake in Northeast Georgia. I'd come back to the boat ramp and there'd be another guy at the boat ramp with a Boykin in the front of his truck, in front of his boat. I had a Boykin, then met another guy with a Boykin. Uh, next thing you know, we're, we become friends. Uh, we have been training our Boykins just as, you know, amateurs wanting good duck dogs and got to knowing each other pretty well and started meeting up on Saturdays and Sundays and training together and found out that we all kind of used the same training program back then and uh, had a great time with it. Um, I didn't know anything about a hunt test or a field trial at that point. Uh, we used our dogs to pick up our ducks. Mm -hmm. um, didn't know about competitions and, and doing something outside of duck season other than training. And so uh, I'd met a professional trainer in North Georgia and asked him if I could come over and hang out and just learn some stuff from him training wise. And uh, went over there with my with one of my boykins that was pretty good uh, back in the day and uh he started talking about hunt tests a little bit and field trialing and um he saw my dog was pretty good for a boykin that's what he said every all the lab trainers is always well it's pretty good for a boykin right uh, 
never would admit that it could do the same work as their labs uh, or their goldens or whatever other larger breed dog. And he invited me to a, a hunt test. And I said, I don't know anything about it. He said, you know, he kind of showed me the ropes. I saw my little dog up for the highest level there was, you know, being the arrogant idiot that I was and went in there and actually passed both days and kind of got hooked in the competitive uh, hunt test side mm -hmm. of things and kept doing that and got a title on that hunt and retriever champion title on that Boykin and uh, on the next one. And then started to see why a lot of the guys, uh, a lot of the pro trainers complained about watching the Boykins and hunt tests because they did look terrible. And so um, one thing led to another, I was teaching school and I started, you know, people at the hunt test would see mine and say, Hey, will you take, you know, will you train my boy again? And I said, yeah, sure. I had time. I get off at three every day off all summer. And so I would, uh, take two or three or four in the summer and work with them. And those dogs started getting better and started getting their, their hunt test titles. And, uh, one thing led to another, my wife and I decided we'd start, uh, start our own business doing this. She was still working. And our five-year goal happened in about 16 months oh, and wow. things just blew up on us. And we started Hudson River Retrievers and we were training nothing but Boykins back then. Uh, we were just kind of diving into a, to a little bit of a niche market uh -huh. and doing that. And uh, over the years, you know, I don't don't know how many how many title Boykins we've titled, but it's been a, a, a good many and a lot of the higher uh title dogs hunt retriever champions and master hunters which there aren't a lot of boykins have done that uh we can we can at least claim that we put our hands on uh a good many of those or bred a lot of them and so we breed them too and just this two years ago we started a online subscription-based uh, boykin training program uh, which isn't really just for boykins because i tell everybody i train my boykins just like i train a lab um, I just, there's a few little nuances that, that are slightly different, um, but we have a program online through a Patreon account that people get on and subscribe to and follow along with us. And, uh, it's fun helping people that don't want to send their dogs off to a train that just want to do it themselves. And, uh, mm -hmm. so we, we do anything that, uh, the lab guys do with our Boykins and we hunt them hard. Uh, my Boykins have hunted all over the country and, and can get it done. Okay. So I'm, I'm on my third chocolate lab the first right. one weighed 100 pounds male great hunter a lot of drive but just so big i started having kids um well, actually planning for kids we got the second one and she died last year she lived to be 11 uh, and she weighed 60 pounds and i was right. like that was more in the sweet spot for us because that kind of dog can still ride under the kids in the back seat of the truck you know and uh right. just there, there's a big difference between 60 and 100 pound dog um okay. And then this dog that I have now, uh, trained by Rusty over at Trigger Time in Bonham, uh, she weighs, JoJo weighs like 53 pounds. So really on the small side for a lab. Perfect for me, you know. Right. Uh, maybe when the kids are out of the house, I'll go back to a big dog, but I, I just like the the small females. What is a Boykin, uh, what is the average size Boykin weigh, male and female? Breed standard, Boykin Spaniel Society set a breed standard, and for a female, I believe it's 25 to 35 pounds mm -hmm. and a male is I think 30, 35 to 45, somewhere mm -hmm. in that, that nature. And I like them within the breed standard. There's, there's a few lines of, of breeders kind of getting involved with trying to make bigger Boykins. And I said, if I wanted a bigger dog, I'd hunt with a lab and I do hunt labs. Mm -hmm. I've got, we own both. Um, and you know, they both fit their needs, but if it's going to be a, if I want a Boykin, I want a small dog. 
I want a right. you know smaller one. So my my best male that I've ever owned that is eleven now, and he's on his last year uh, competitive work before we retire him. He's about 37, 38 pounds soaking wet, and that's the way I like him. So where do where do boykins? So other than size, what what is the appeal of a boykin compared to a lab? Or I don't know if many people even still hunt with goldens anymore. I I don't hunt with anybody that has a golden. Um, I don't really think it's that popular in Texas these days, but, uh, what are the advantages of, of a Boykin, uh, over some of the larger breeds? Well, whether it's, or maybe advantage, there aren't any, I don't know. Maybe it's just the size thing. Well, the size thing is the advantage, I guess, if you're, uh -huh. you know, if you're paddling through a, a back backwater swamp in a kayak, uh, or a canoe and you're, you know, shooting wood ducks and, you know, it's easy to grab that Boykin, pick them up back into the, into the boat. That's sort of where they originated in South Carolina and in the, in the low country doing things like that. Um, they got an incredible uh, nose. And so you shoot them ducks and it lands in, in the swamps or in the reeds or the cattails or lily pads, wherever um, that little joker is going to find it. Um, they're a very versatile breed. And I think the allure comes from the versatility of them. They're mm -hmm. such good flushing dogs. Uh, a lot of people like to do upland hunting with them, quail hunt, pheasant hunt, grouse hunt, that, that sort of thing. Um, we mainly, we want them for duck hunting and goes back to my, you know, personality type. And I just like to prove people wrong. And mm. I've got a, I've got a 26 pound female on my trailer right now. That is good. A, good a boykin female boykin I've ever seen. And she does, she runs master tests with the labs. Um, she's going to be the, after this month, when we run a lot, next couple master tests, she'll be this eighth boykin female. Uh, that has a hunt retriever champion and a master hunter retriever title. And man, she's just a bad little dog. She doesn't mm -hmm. know she's 26 pounds. Um, yeah. picks up geese can, you know, do anything. And, you know, they can pick up a Canada goose. You might have to work with them a little bit and teach them, but I've had to work and teach plenty of labs too, uh, how to handle it and not be afraid of it. But, um, they're, they're versatile. They do the upland great. Uh, they do the duck hunting great. You know, they're just good little dogs. They can fit in the layout blind with you. Uh, and you know, rock and roll. You said something like that, uh, that piqued my interest looking back on time spent in Africa. When you said the dog doesn't know it's 26 pounds, it reminds me of, uh, the Jack Russell's that they use as blood tracking dogs that might That's weigh right. 15 pounds, you know, like yeah. don't tell a Jack Russell, he weighs 15 pounds. He doesn't know. He just is like, Oh, there's a wounded kudu. I'm going to go get it now. Like <laughs> That's the deal, man. You get yeah. You get a well-bred boy can, and breeding's important. You know, there's, uh, I've trained, I've trained a lot from all different lines across the country. And I see some in particular that have the drive and the want to, and that, you know, just don't give a rip attitude and I'm going to go get that duck. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's what I want. I want one that I can sit in a pit blind in Arkansas with eight or nine guys and he's going to pick up our eight or nine limits. Yeah. Um, Breaking so they, is there a, is there a, an issue with stamina or can they go as hard as a lab? Oh, well, obviously their size makes a difference on that. And, mm -hmm. you know, is there a difference in the stamina? I, I'd say so. You know, they've yeah. got to make about 300 steps to that labs, uh, 75 steps to, right. you know, to that bird. And, um, you know, they swim slower because their legs are smaller. Um, yeah. you know, and there's some that can swim pretty daggum fast. Um, faster than some slow labs, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it, it, you know, you're comparing apples and oranges a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you get a, a, I've got a little 
50 something pound chocolate lab female in my trail that runs field trials. And that little dog swims faster than any dog I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you get a 90 or hundred pound lab and, you know, they can't keep up with that thing. Um, yeah. They get a little bit tired sometimes quicker. And so, you know, I think it's dog to dog uh, in all of it. And I think it's, you know, you get a dog to me, if you get a dog that has a desire for a bird bad enough, they don't care how cold, they don't care how rough it is, how thick it is, how tired they are. They're going to go get that duck. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Regardless of breed, if that dog yeah, is wired that way, they don't know they're tired. They're not I hate it enough, they're go get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about the cold? How do these dogs do in uh, colder temperatures? Some do great. Some don't do so great. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's I think a lot of it has to do with upbringing. But I think the cold, uh, the cold water issue to me goes back to my previous statement. A dog that wants that bird bad enough. And this is any breed. Mm-hmm. So I've had plenty of labs that aren't don't want to go on that last blind. Uh, because the water's cold or because they just, you know, they just don't want to do it. But it's that desire for that bird. I think every dog is cold when they get in icy water. You know, they're all cold. But how bad does that dog want that bird? And is it worth the cold to go get that bird? So you get to buy a dog, buy a Boykin that is wired for birds and wants that bird more than anything. And I think, you know, they're, they're small size uh, and their coat type you know, it'll be overridden by that desire for that bird and they'll just work. I, I sold a puppy to a guy several years ago in upstate New York that hunts almost every day of duck season. He sent me pictures of that dog back on a dog stand uh, on a big lake, just icicles hanging all over it everywhere. He sent me, you know, pictures of that dog in the snow retrieving geese for him. And so a lot of it has to do with upbringing. A lot of it has to do with breeding uh, and that desire for birds, but they can handle it. If yeah. I was a hunter in uh canada i had a guy call a trainer from canada called me a few weeks ago wanting to know if uh you know if it was a good idea his client wanted to buy a a a boykin for duck hunting up there and they hunt water and i said man if i lived in canada i wouldn't buy a boykin not for water um but for where we hunt in the southeast and in arkansas and you know texas and louisiana they're perfect okay and so i mean i've hunted one of my buddies he's a country singer ray johnson he's on his second boykin we've been hunting together for 15 years and uh I, that's the only experience i have with them great little dogs but uh he's always bitching about their coat and you know how it gets all matted up and it, especially i would think if you're doing upland hunting with them what is the maintenance like on on that for what we do it's not too bad um and the coat type varies so much in the breed some of them have a pretty thin flat coat uh-huh. uh, some have a thicker curly coat some have just a wavy, you know, longer hair, and it's and it's very random on what dogs are producing that. But it depends a lot on the coat where you hunt. Um, you know, if I'm hunting a swamp back home that has cockaburs in it, I'm taking my lap. Okay. Um, things will get matted up. Typically, the worst place is behind their ears. We keep them shaved right here behind their ears, and it makes it easier to get that stuff out. Um, but you know, if you're in, we're down here in Florida right now, and they've got tons of sand spurs everywhere. And my wife's been. Uh, bitching at me about every evening because you know Allie's got sand spurs all in her coat or Buck's got them all in a butt you know and she's mm-hmm. picking them out and so yeah there's you're gonna have that uh you know especially when you're out upland hunting and you're in in the fields doing that in the water not so bad mm-hmm. um but there is a little bit of maintenance we don't shave our boykins at all uh other than like I said around their ears um we keep them their coats the way they are all year long 
Um, some people think shaving them is going to help them be cooler in the summertime. It's the exact opposite, according to the vets uh, and most doctors. That 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 coat serves as insulation, keeps the sun off their skin, and actually keeps them cooler in the summer. And huh. go back to the allure of the boy, and that's another thing. You know, they were they're, they're the South Carolina state dog, a hot natured state, especially during dove season. The boykins are super popular for dove season, um, but they're very heat tolerant. And so, you know, it's 92 degrees on September 1st and we're dove hunting in North Georgia and oh, boykins picking up birds for everybody and doing good and not stroking out. And yeah. so um, that's a, another, you know, good point and positive to the breed. Right on. Okay, well, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back and continue the Boykin conversation momentarily. That segment, though, was brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy and my friends over at Trigger Time Kennels. Now, Boykin's not for everybody. Actually, I'd say um, most people, most duck hunters hunt with a lab, right? Uh, that's the standard. And if you're looking for a lab, if you're a lab guy like myself, uh, then you need to check out Trigger Time. My friend Rusty Hagelin, that's where we got little JoJo. She just turned two this week, by the way. Happy birthday, JoJo. Um, but he not only bred JoJo, he also trained her. Uh, she just wrapped up an incredible first season in the duck blind. Uh, also fetched a lot of dove, too. Uh, very pleased with her drive. And uh, Rusty will train your dog. Or, uh, you know, if you're looking for a great bloodline, uh, he has litters available from time to time as well. And you can find him on Facebook or Instagram at Trigger Time Kennels. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Taking ass is getting old. Taking names takes its toll. On a worn out, busted, beat up soul like mine. Time to tell you about Protect Products. Veteran owned and made in the USA. Protect makes your water work harder for you in the field. They have a hydration electrolyte formula for endurance and replenishment. It's perfect for elk hunting, right? Uh, energy formula for when you need an extra kick. Immunity for optimizing the immune system. And one of my favorites, the rest formula to ensure deep sleep and proper recovery. All the formulas are liquid, so they mix instantly in your water bottle or camelback. And the cool thing is they don't gunk them up like a powder with that messy residue. They also have an easy-to-use line of mineral sunscreen for quick and odorless application and all-day protection in the field. For more info... Head over to protect.com to see their entire lineup. That's protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Radney Foster for you today. Half of my mistakes bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you. Thanks for being here today. We're still talking Boykin Spaniels with Blaine Tarnecki. Before we get back into that conversation, though, this segment is brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Ducks Unlimited. Uh, thanks to DU, by the way, for setting up our conversation. Um, my interest in and talking about Boykin stemmed from an uh, article written by Tom Davis that was sent out in the DU uh, newsletter. So Tom was like, well, yeah, I'll, I'd love to talk to you about it, but why don't you discuss it with the actual authority? And, of course, he recommended Blaine, who he 
uh, referenced in the article. So uh, thanks to DU and thanks to Tom as well. With that being said, uh, let's get back into that conversation here. And Blaine, I did want to ask you because the Boykins that I've hunted with and the ones that I've come across uh, have typically been chocolate colored. Is there any other acceptable color variation with this? They're all in on the registration. They're either going to be registered uh, liver or dark chocolate. And so the liver ones are even dark, are a little bit darker. And I don't, I can't, I've seen Ray's dog. I've seen him and met him at Boykin Spaniel Nationals. He'd come out and do a little show for the uh, pre uh, national ceremony stuff. And um, I can't remember his dogs, but um, they're all going to be that brown color. Um, that's the breed standard. Some may have a tiny little bit of white on their chest here, and mm -hmm. it's allowable to a certain degree. Um, there's measurements you take when they're puppies, uh, whether or not they can be registered, but any other white on their body anywhere is a disqualification for registration. Okay. Uh, what, what about cost compared to, uh, a lab? That's a great question. Um, you get, Depending, and it's same with a lab, but depending on the breeding, um, you know, a very well-bred Boykin, if you get one of the few that are hunt retriever champion master hunters times another hunt retriever champion master hunter puppy, you could spend, you know, four grand easy on those puppies at eight weeks old. Mm -hmm. uh, fully health tested. Boykins are susceptible to several different uh, genetic problems, but there's tests for them. We test all our pup, you know, all our uh, sires and dams before being bred. So we know that the puppies won't have them, but you get a fully tested Boykin with average, you know, hunt test experience and titles and they're good hunters. You know, you're going to spend two to $2,500 for a puppy on average. Okay. Okay. Right on. Um, yeah. And I've always, you know, going back to my times hunting with Ray's dog, you know, I, I, I just thought they were cool little dogs. Um, and while I'm, you haven't talked me into getting one, I, I love labs. I think yeah. that they, they deserve some respect and, and for people that want something smaller, Hey, here's a great alternative. Oh um, yeah. No, for, like I said, the kids were the main reason why I wanted a smaller dog. I'm glad that I did. And then once I got a smaller one, I'm like, that's what I'm going to do from now on with my yeah. labs. So, and I, like I said, I love them both. Um, I'm my main hunting dog right now is a four-year-old yellow lab that we own that is just mm -hmm. a machine um and i mean he's big and strong and and built and can swim and is just a, a marking machine he's a trial dog and um you know does it all and you know but i hunt i hunt boykins still but buck's getting older he's retiring uh pretty soon we got a younger one coming up and she'll start hunting soon um i'll hunt them both i'll take them both out to, to my club in arkansas or when i go hunting in other places and um, hunt one one day and you know depending on the conditions or amount of people you know may hunt the other one mm -hmm. uh, but you know they're do you ever hunt them both when you're upland hunting i i can tell you i can count on no hands the number of times i go upland hunting okay um, <laughs> yeah i just don't i'm a duck hunter and i'm a mm -hmm. retriever trainer i don't i don't train for upland uh very rarely will i train an upland dog um i i like making boykins into just badass retrievers uh -huh. um duck dogs and that's where we kind of made our name and and do our deal and that's what we do that's that's what i hunt you know yeah. i hunt every day of duck season if you know life allowed it um yeah. but i'm not missing a day of duck season to go you know flush birds right um, <laughs> so with ducks what and you said they have great little noses uh as good as a lab you think i think they're better most spaniels 
um, have better noses. And, and I think I, in that article that you were speaking of earlier, I mentioned it to him, the spaniel's ears are, so, you know, with all the hair and they're a little bit longer, a dog's ears has a lot to do with scent. And mm -hmm. so with, and it's like bloodhounds have big giant ears. And so those ears provide scent cones and kind of trap in that scent closer to their face. And so that's the reason why spaniels and, uh, you know, English setters and, you know, different kind of bird dogs like that have such good nose and the bloodhounds mm -hmm. have good nose. It's, it's a lot to do with their ears. Huh. I did so, not know that. Um, hair on their okay. ears. Huh. Uh, what about when you compare a Boykin to a Cocker Spaniel or right. something? I mean, a, a dog that's comparable in size. What is the advantage of, and I don't know if you've worked with Cockers before. Uh, yeah, I have, and I've been around them a good bit. A Boykin Spaniel is a pretty high-strung beast because they're mm -hmm. a Spaniel. You get a, co a true uh, field Cocker, and they're a Boykin times 10 as far as energy goes. And mm -hmm. so they were built to work a field and work it fast um, and thoroughly. And they're a better upland dog, but they're not near the waterfowl dog. Um, as a boy, and I'm actually training a, a little English cocker now for a hunt test judge who wants to turn this into a retriever hunt test dog. And, you know, it's sort of square peg round hole kind of a deal. And, you know, the difference is I'm trying to get a spaniel who wants to quarter a field to run straight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the English cockers that I have seen, and it's not all of them, but the ones I have seen don't have the drive in the water. Um, and, you know, they're a good bit smaller. Um, the little field cockers are a good bit smaller than even the Boykins for the most part. Um, now the one I'm training is doing good. It's going to take a lot longer. Um, mm -hmm. They're just, you know, they're spastic little creatures and and a little bit, a little bit different than than the Boykins. But you know, if I was wanting, if I was wanting a duck dog and I was picking from anything other than a lab or a well-bred field golden, it would definitely be a Boykin. Okay. Um, interesting. So. As we're wrapping up here, uh, when it comes to the Boykin, um, but you said they're they're from North Carolina. Historically, when did they when did they breed this dog into South, existence? South Carolina. Oh, South, South Carolina. Carolina. Yeah, okay. I, I don't remember the day. It's early 1900s. Um, mm -hmm. They came about, and uh, the old story was, and you know, early on they were, you know, a, a mixture of several different breeds. And a guy found this little dog, the, the, the tail is, and um, he was on the Watery River in South Carolina where he lived and hunted. And um, it was just like a lot of people say, it's the, it's the dog that doesn't rock the boat. And everybody out there in the, in the low country of South Carolina are paddling around and, and hunting wood ducks and mallards in these little uh, back, uh, backwood swamps and, and waterways. And um you know that was sort of their origination and they became really popular dove dogs dove hunting's huge in south carolina tons of dove clubs like their duck clubs out you know out west and mm -hmm. uh, they loved them for dove, dove hunting and flushing quail and and doing all the kind of plantation work uh that the little dogs do and uh so that's sort of where the you know the origin came from uh, yeah i wonder what kind of breeds they had they used to create the boy I, i've heard it i don't keep up with it i just think of them as boykins now yeah uh, you know the, i know there's water spaniel in them, american water spaniel in them 
um couple you know probably a little cocker in them it's got to be um yeah. you know but all these this hodgepodge of dogs made this breed now that's you know recognized as a as a breed we have uh, our state dog in texas is called the blue lacy not a very popular dog across the country i know what but you're man, talking about the guys in south texas use these things to blood track deer right and the legend is they have some coyote in them and they are kind of wild like you know like yeah. Uh, yeah. i wouldn't be like i, like, I had a guy uh that ran the texas lacy dog foundation and he bred them and had a great bloodline he offered me a, a puppy i was right. like man i have kids and i have like i live in a I don't live on land. I live in a neighborhood. I was like, no, nah, I just, I can't accept that, you know, yeah. not because I don't think it's a great dog, but for me, like, <laughs> I'm not going to be fair to that dog. I don't have, you know, I'm not, it's just, but, uh, but yeah, they have coyote in them. So the legend says, I don't know. Be interesting to, I've heard they're pretty, uh, pretty nasty little critters at times. Well, you think about bang up a deer or a hog or whatever, they got to have a lot of grit in them. So for sure. Yeah. There's getting, there's a lot of boykins out in Texas. Now there's some really good ones out there and, um, I trained one for an outfitter, uh, out, outside of Wichita Falls, mm-hmm. uh, trained one for him as a personal guide dog for him. Um, and there, you know, there's several good lines of Boykins out there in Texas. Would you say the Boykin is increasing in popularity? Oh yeah. hundred percent. Um, mm-hmm. I could sell, I could sell 25 Boykins today. If I had 25 Boykins, um, it'll take a little while to sell labs. Now the market's flooded with lots of lab readings all over the place, but, mm-hmm. um, the Boykin market is super good. Um, super strong. The prices just keep going up, you know, regardless of the, uh, the economy that we're in, it seems like they just keep going up and, and popularity is increasing. If you go to hunt test, that's the sort of the, the biggest tell for me is seeing them at hunt test and seeing so many Boykins at the finish level and at the master level of hunt test now, um, where, you know, 18, 20 years ago when we started running those tests, you know, you would see, you know, you might see one or two in an upper level uh, hunt test. And now you'll see, you know, you'll see several. I'll take six or seven. I'm running a master test this weekend down here in Florida and I'm running uh, five Boykins in it. That club probably Mm -hmm. won't see, you know, that many Boykins at a test at one time the rest of the year. Um, but you're starting to see more and more running the upper level hunt test um, and people are realizing, you know, these dogs can do it. And, you know, as far as the meeting the standard that they're asking labs and every other breed to do, they're meeting it and and passing the same exact test that they are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you mentioned something earlier and I just wanted to pick your brain on that real quick before we go, as far as training them, it's not the same as training a lab. So what are the nuances? Like, are you softer with these dogs or does it take longer? Or what was, what is the difference in the, in the training process between bringing a a Boykin up to, you know, a master hunter versus a lab? Right. It's going to take a little bit longer, Uh um, but I'm going to do the exact same steps in the process with them. Um, I'm going to take them through the typical force fest program that we would with any lab. I'm going to do everything I would with the lab. I might spend, you know, an extra week on this step with a Boykin, um, where the lab, maybe I was able to put more pressure on it and get it through it quicker, where the Boykin uh, may, and some Boykins can handle tons of pressure and more pressure than a lab. It's again, individual, but um, when I might push a lab, I'll pull a Boykin, Uh uh, if that makes sense. And so we might repeat and help and, you know, show this dog 10 times, and then expect it to do it the right way 
where with a lab, I may show it three or four times. And if I think it got it, it better do it right the fifth time. Um, and so just and it's it's dependent on the dog as well. Um, I've I've gotten HRCH titles on Boykins before they were two years old, and that's incredibly quick for any breed um, and master hunters on them by three years old. Um, I think I think a lot of people have a struggle with the training aspect of it because they don't think that they can handle pressure. Now, pressure is relative to the amount you put on the dog. Mm -hmm. And if I only need to use the one on my remote rather than the eight, then I'm and the dog understands what I'm asking to do, then that's fine. But I'm going to wait. There's a there's a one on the remote. There is. Um, <laughs> my dogs don't know that one. <laughs> some of mine don't either, brother. Someone asked me the other day. Um, someone asked me the other day, why'd you use an eight on that dog? I said, because there's not a nine. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, you know, sometimes I need it. I've had Boykins that I needed another number or two uh, uh -huh. at times. But uh, then I've got labs. I hit a, I've got, we own a little female yellow lab puppy now that we bred. If I hit her on a medium one, you know, she's like, oh my gosh, what are you doing to me? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it's all relative. Um, yeah. You just got to be smart with the dog. But if you train them like a lab, I tell you, train it like a lab. Mm -hmm. Train it like a lab, be careful, and you'll get, you know, you'll get what you want. Right on, right on. Well, it's Hudson River Retrievers. Blaine, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks yes, for, for jumping on and shedding some light on this uh, fascinating little uh, breed that's just increasing in popularity. Yeah, man, no problem. Um, they're great little dogs, great little duck dogs. I've got uh, years of watching them hunt out west and and doing really cool things and, you know, hunting Chesapeake Bay and hunting, you know, all over the place with them. And, you know, the good ones are good. Uh, like any breed, though, the bad ones are bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, get a good one and train it right. And, you know, find a good trainer that's got some uh, experience with Boykin breed. Or if you're going to do it yourself, find a good training program to follow that, uh, you know, has experience with the Boykin breed. Well, hey, thanks again, Blaine. Appreciate yep. you. No problem, brother. So there you have it. Uh, lots of great info on the Boykin Spaniel from Blaine Tarnecki of Hudson River Retrievers. Uh, that segment of the presentation was brought to you by Big and J Whitetail Attractants. Yep, deer season has come and gone, but they also have hog-specific attractants as well. You can find those at Tractor Supply or Walmart, or you can just head over to BigandJ.com. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Thanks to both of our guests, Brian Lynn of Sportsman's Alliance, uh, Blaine, of course, as well. And thanks to you guys and gals for being here. It was an absolute pleasure. I uh, hope that y'all enjoyed it. We'll do it again, same time, same place next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Fuck!